listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. So today we're going to get a little heavier than lately, a little deeper into a topic that many executives and sales leaders wrestle with uh, consistently. Uh, A lot of sales professionals I know hate this word, uh, but the fact of the matter is the world is full of change, and we're all hearing about, quote, unquote, and yes, I'm doing the air quotes, transformation initiatives. Uh, There are a great deal of press lately, a great deal of focus. I know several organizations that are going through them. However, if you look at all the types of transformation and change from digital transformation to sales transformation, organizational transformation, they all really mean the same thing. Change has become the norm, whether you like it or not. And while some organizations deliver great results, many of them fail. And in worst cases, actually harm organizations and the individuals involved in these initiatives. So to tackle the topic with us today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Barbara Troutline, a 20-year veteran in the change or transformation space, author of the book Change Intelligence, a principal with Change Catalyst and creator of the CQ Change Intelligence system. It's a mouthful, but Barbara, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, Chad. Hi, everybody. (laughs) All right. So lately it's all over the press. All of people are talking about it um, day in and day out. And we're hearing a lot of, you know, two topics we're going to focus on. So there's these different types of intelligence. And you and I were talking before we hit record about, you know, technical intelligence that Jeb Blunt came up with to emotional intelligence and, of course, IQ. And now change intelligence or CQ uh, and how transformation initiatives or or large scale initiatives should happen and why they fail. So for some context, let's get started with some background on how did you decide to make change an area that most people fear (laughs) the focus of your of your career? Yeah, so great question. And I actually started in this business almost 30 years ago now. I started in the mid-80s. And for those of your listeners as old as I am, you might remember (laughs) that in the mid-80s where I was living and working in the Midwest of the United States, we were actually called the Rust Belt. And we were called the Rust Belt because our lunch was getting eaten by foreign competition, especially (laughs) the automotive industry. Yeah, so I was working in Um, As part of a consulting team, I was 25 years old and I was working part of a consulting team that was um, working with, uh, you know, some automotive plants and their suppliers to help them, um, you know, change to remain competitive and keep the doors open. Um, And so uh, so I'll never forget my first day on the job as, you know, 25 year old woman in a steel mill um, (laughs) surrounded by all men. And they were all 20 or 30 years older than me, maybe 40. They'd all worked in the mill their whole careers. And I stand up and I introduce myself and I said, um, you know, we're going to partner together and we're going to transform you guys to high performance and total quality and self-managed teams. And uh, a guy from the back of the room stands up. He comes right to the front of the room and he says, we're steel workers and we don't listen to girls. So uh, I guess just walking in the room, I was a change for them, right? A paradigm shift, as we used to say back in the day. And, um, and uh, yeah, we did partner together for two years, and they returned to solvency. And, and uh, you know, then so pretty much my whole career has been um, helping you know, people, teams, and organizations lead change. 
Excellent. So we all know and many of these change initiatives have a tendency to fail. Uh, most of us wouldn't like to hear that or admit that, but I wouldn't be surprised if many of our listeners hadn't been part of, I know I have been, or affected by these types of initiatives. But I'd love to get your perspective with your experience on why is it that these initiatives fail? Yeah, exactly. And that's the question I asked myself about seven or eight years ago when I went down the path of developing the mouthful that is the CQ system. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I sat back and I said, yeah, you know, there was research that John Cotter and his colleagues at Harvard did when I was first getting into the business in the 80s and early 90s that, that came up with the statistic that 70% are more of major organizational changes fail. So those are things like, you know, changing your company's sales approach or implementing a new CRM system or a merger or acquisition or new product launch or expansion, 70% fail. And then about, again, a decade ago, just before I was starting to write my book and came up with Change Intelligence, they, McKinsey and Consulting, the global consulting firm, did a similar study and came out with a similar statistic. So in the span of about 20 years, we hadn't moved the needle in our ability to design and implement change that sticks. So I sat back and I said, you know, why is that? And at that point, I had been, um, you know, working with many different organizations in different industries to do pretty much two things, to manage change and then to develop leadership capability. And so considering this huge gap and failure rate that we had, I sat back and I said, well, maybe it's a combination of managing change and developing leaders, a.k.a. leading change, developing the capacity to not just manage change and not just develop our overall leadership skills, but really build our skills in leading change. And so I decided that, yeah, what we need is to be smarter about leading change. <laughs> we need change intelligence. Hence, CQ was born. And so, all right, so it sounds like, you know, you sit back, you think about it, and it sounds like most of the failures or a lot of the failures come from people's inability to manage it rather than the process or approach they choose to take. Now, that may not necessarily be a, uh, a popular perspective for people that have led failed initiatives, um, but when did you start realizing that people were causing the majority of failures instead of process? Was there a light bulb moment, a, a, an epiphany? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to your point, when y if you look at the literature on managing change, I, the large bulk of it focuses on overcoming resistance to change, overcoming resistance to change. So what is the focus of that? The focus is on doing something to other people or <laughs> against them or even in spite of them, right? It's, you know, we're not trying to manage the change or lead the change. We're trying to change the people, do something to the people. And so, you know, and, and you know, what can we control though? What can we control? We can control ourselves, right? Only ourselves. We can't force change on others any more than we could, um, you know, uh, you know, force them to for, force them to change. We can influence them. We can partner with them, but we can't force them. So if the only thing we can control is ourselves, we can't control other people. Then what can we do? Well, we can turn the mirror back on ourselves. And my view is that so often what looks like resistance out there in other people is a lack of change leader, you know, ability to really, you know, encourage people to get it to want it and be able to do it. In other words, an opportunity to look at ourselves and do something differently as change leaders. So this is where CQ comes into play, right? So, so help exactly. our audience understand how CQ is different from IQ or EQ. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, IQ is your raw emotional intelligence, right? And it's something you're born with, and it's actually pretty challenging to really um, impact a lot after your early years, right? 
Um, EQ, on the other hand, is your emotional intelligence, and it's all about how aware you are of your own emotions and what triggers you emotionally and how you are aware you are of others' emotions and use that knowledge to build effective relationships. So it is a skill that EQ is a skill that we can build, right? We can increase our awareness. We can increase our ability to, um, you know, control ourselves, manage our behaviors, and we can also increase our ability to be more sensitive to other people's emotions and use that information to build relationships with them. So very similarly, um, change intelligence is the awareness of our style of leading change, how we lead change, and then the ability to adapt our style so we can be more effective. Because again, what can we control? Only ourselves. So that's how it's an intelligence. It's being more intelligent about how we are um, uh, uh, how we are leading the change. So it, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like uh, definitely an increased mindfulness, right? And a level of uh, authenticity and vulnerability at an executive or leadership level that, I mean, I've, I've been, around, been around the block too, so we're in the same age bracket. And I've yeah. had executives where if you were to say those words, authenticity and vulnerability, uh, if they weren't screaming at you to get out of the room, then the glance you got <laughs> was typically sending you out of the room. But it has become increasingly more important. So from your perspective, why has that ability to, and it's your quote, engage the hearts and equip the hands uh, become so critical today? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because um, so many of the, you know, I I work with leaders at all levels from the front line to the C-suite and people think, um, uh, you know, some people think, oh, well, I'm not a change leader because I don't have that, you know, C-suite title or director title or vice president title in my um uh, in my description, right, my, my job. However, I know that even at the very top of the house, there's a lot of fear out there. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of imposter syndrome that, wow, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that I got here, right, and I've been successful my entire career, but I don't know what to do now. I don't know what to lead, how to lead my organization through this next big thing. And so that can sometimes, you know, mask as um, the kind of behaviors that you're talking about, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, Marshall Goldsmith wrote this great book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, you know? <laughs> right. and, and yeah, and it's all about the fact that we need to continue to build our capacity to, you know, lead change, lead people, you know, lead, leadership in general, um, to continue to deal with increasing challenges. So so you're absolutely right that it, it can, you know, some people can take, um, take umbrage to that, and yet we know that the most effective leaders are the most reflective, you know, the ones who actually kind Kind of, um, uh, you know, look at their successes and also look at where they've stumbled and use them as um, fodder for continual learning. So, um, so yeah. So that, and um, so anyway, that that's uh, that that's what I would say to that. When you mention equipping the hands and, and engaging the heart, um, uh, I, I well maybe it's a good time to step back and talk about what the styles of leading change are because I think that it help with the conversation about focusing on senior leaders. Um, would that help? Okay. So, so what change intelligence is my definition, it's the awareness of your style of leading change and the ability to adapt it. So you can be more effective across people and situations, right? Um, you can be more authentic, more transparent, all that good stuff you talk about. So, um, so what I say, and this might be interesting for your listeners to think about, they can kind of self-diagnose their style of leading change. And so I've distinguished that there are three styles. Some leaders lead from the heart. So when they lead, they focus on the people that are impacted by the change. So they spend a lot of time engaging with people, communicating, building teams and building trust, right? Um, then the other second style is leading from the head. 
folks who lead from the head, they focus on the vision, the strategy, the big picture, the future, visionary and strategic leaders. Then the third style is leading from the hands. Those folks like to figure out how to get from here to there. They're very planful, efficient, tactical, detail-oriented, right? So um, all of, just like all of us have a head, um, you know, a heart, and most of us have two hands, we all can and do engage in all those kind of behaviors, but most of us tend to have a preference. <laughs> and yeah, right. And so I have a research database that shows pretty clearly that folks at the top of the organization, the higher up you go, the more likely it is that you lead change from the head. Right. Which makes sense because that's kind of the executive's job leading the organization. However, that's a strength. But any strength overdone is not so much a strength anymore, right? And so sometimes um, executives or people who lead primarily from the head, they can, um, they're very excited about the change, right? They see the possibility, <laughs> right? They're thinking about yeah. it. But, and they're on the bus and the bus is leaving the station, but they look around and they look behind them and nobody's on the bus, right? <laughs> so... So that's why I say that it, 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 it's very beneficial for, you know, executives, for senior leaders to engage the heart, to remember that you need to deal with people, that not everybody's going to be excited as you, and that you need to engage the heart. You need to connect the, the change with people's emotions, understand their fears and concerns. You need to customize your communications to really connect with people instead of one size fits all, fits all messaging. And when I say equip the hands is because... That's the least prevalent style anyway at any level is hands-oriented type of change leadership. And that's one reason I think we have the high failure rate of change because a leader might be charismatic and get people on the bus, but a lot of times the bus derails because people don't have the plan and the process and the tools or there's barriers in the organization preventing good people from behaving consistently with the change. So that's why I say that leaders, you know, again, we might have a great vision, might have a great mission. The change might make a heck of a lot of sense. But if we're not engaging the heart, getting people on board, and if we're not equipping the hands, helping them get from here to there, then we're not going to have successful change. Okay. And so in order for, for people to increase their CQ, right, you have to know where you are in order to know where you want to go. So you've developed a CQ assessment. Can you tell me more about that, how it works and, and what you've learned analyzing the data? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, many of your listeners are probably familiar with the DISC or the Myers-Briggs or the Strength Finders. And so, <laughs> and uh, a lot of people are assessment out, and I'm an organizational psychologist, so I use those, uh, those tools all the time myself. Uh, but why I created the CQ assessment is to laser focus on leading change, right, as opposed to other aspects of your leadership style, your work style. So it's an online assessment. It takes, you know, just about 15 minutes to complete. It's about 20 items. And it results in a report about, you know, um, how you lead from the head, hand, hands, or heart. And so to your point, I do have a database of sev several thousand change leaders. And it is very interesting. I mean, um, what the data shows, I talked briefly about the differences by organizational level. Um, but the prevalence of the change leader style, I think, is very interesting. Um, the data shows that slightly more people lead from the heart than from the head. Um, but it's very close, about 40% in each category, uh, about 42% from the heart, that's the people side of change, about 40% from the head, the vision, the strategy, the smallest percentage, only about 18% lead from the hands. And so people who lead from the hands, that's what's all about the implementation, the sustainability. And I think that's one of the big reasons for the high failure rate of change is that, you know, strategy is sexy, right? It's great to be a strategist. <laughs> 
And uh, we know so much about the bottom line benefits of it, of engagement, right? From productivity, customer service, retention, you know, Gallup. And, um, you know, we know a lot of about research about engagement. So we know we need the heart. We know we need that um, head. However, what gets what's undervalued, right, and downplayed and neglected and seen as tactical, right, is the leading from the hands, is the implementing and the making change stick. Yeah, everybody wants to think big thoughts. Nobody actually wants to do the work. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> You're right. And the people who are doers, right, are looked at, right, as, you know, implementers, not initiators, right? Um, you know, team players, not team leaders. And so, uh, so uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of layers to that onion. But I do think that um, those preferences that people have and those stereotypes is, you know, is part of the reason for, you know, our failures uh, as change leaders sometimes. And so do you, in that data, do you see differences in CQ by region or culture geography, or maybe differences across the silos of an organization, say sales versus ops versus finance? Yes, definitely. And if people are interested in slicing and dicing the data in different ways and the research results, you know, they can feel free to get in touch with me. I have lots of research reports, but just big picture wise in terms of around the world, that really surprised me. But one of the most interesting differences, I think, is that there are no significant differences that I found thus far in the prevalence of the styles in different regions of the world. Oh, wait. So you mean people are people are people? No. Exactly. That's right. Despite <laughs> everything we hear all the time in the media. And um, yes, that people are people are people. And so I think that's very edifying in some ways. And it's also consistent with some research that um, people who study organizational culture come up with. Um, that really what um, that organizational culture, so kind of the norms inside your organization trump regional culture, which I think is very interesting. interesting. The workplace. That's right. People always find those results hard to believe. Now, what I will say is that, you know, so for example, one of my, after the, you know, all the plant closings and the economic challenges of the 80s and the 90s, I started getting more and more involved in startup organizations. So new facility startups. And one steel mill I helped start up was a Japanese US joint venture. And the uh, management in the union wanted to start it up with a self managed team approach. And I tell you that. The perception of what a team should be by the American owners and versus <laughs> by the Japanese owners were very, very different. So I think that while the prevalence of leading from the head, hard hands, focusing on the people, purpose, purpose or process might be similar in different regions around the world, quantitatively, in terms of how they answer the assessment, I think the behaviors qualitatively that they engage in, right, what it means to lead from the heart in Japan versus in America, right, versus in Europe, versus in Africa, um, might be different. Well, and and, so isn't that like a cultural overlay? So, I mean, you've got people are people, so you've got heart, heads, and hands, and, and it sounds like that's pretty significant, but the implementation, the realization of that goes through a cultural filter. Would that be fair to say? That's my guess. That's my guess. And I actually have um, one thing that the first thing people asked me when the assessment came out and my book was published was, can we get certified in this so we can, you know, use it in our organizations and with our clients. And so now I have there are um, CQ certified uh, change agents in 13 different countries. And that's one of the things that we're working on is really looking at the answer to that question. So I'm excited to see how things are emerging. But yeah, definitely. Um, uh, that you know, I'm, I'm, we're seeing some uh, interesting, um, interesting differences. So I like how you said that cultural overlay. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, we see it a lot. I spend a lot of time doing, uh, you know, CX, uh, customer experience design. So how do you create a frictionless experience, combine physical and digital uh, for an optimized experience for consumers or B2B? And we spent a lot of years doing it. And it was interesting to see that while, much like you have found, people are people are people, the, the realization and perception of reality as a result of the cultural overlay changes their perception of different elements in that experience. So something that an American may find frictionless, you know, someone from APAC would just absolutely, it would stop them in their tracks. And so that sensitivity uh, is, is something that has always fascinated me. No, absolutely. And just to your point, you know, one bit of coaching that I give a lot of times when I'm um, working with frontline leaders or middle management is that the most important change leadership competency is leadership courage. Sometimes you have to give that upward feedback that, um, you know, there are things that the executives are doing or not doing that's standing in the way of a successful initiative, right? Either it's being under-resourced or the sponsorship isn't strong or people aren't seeing the senior leaders walking the talk, whatever it is. It's important to give that feedback because what you see depends on where you sit, right? right. <laughs> and in and, and the United States and Europe, those messages are well-received. In Asia... That's a challenging message to hear, right? It's um, it's it's not considered appropriate in every organization, right? Um, uh, you know, take you know Japan for example, um, to um, to to provide that kind of feedback upward, and so that is a cultural prescription that, to your point, um, would create friction, shall right. we say? Um, so <laughs> yeah. there needs to be different ways to be able to get that job done. Um, so, so I like how you said that. So let's get specific in terms of evolving one CQ and I'm not, you know, I don't want you to give away all of the, all of the magic, but if there were three things an executive or a change leader could start doing today to improve their CQ, what would they be and why? Yeah. So again, what's the definition of change intelligence? It's the awareness of one style of leading change and the ability to adapt it. So I would definitely start with awareness. Obviously, you could take the assessment. Um, and yet, oftentimes, you can look at your people that you're leading through change to get pretty good insights about what um, your style might be and what some of the gaps or blind spots might be. So for example, if you see that your people are, you know, um, uh, kind of afraid, right, or, um, uh, or, or um, uh, you know, that there's resistance that seems like it comes from more the emotional space, right, um, then that's the opportunity potentially for you as a change leader to build some skill in engaging the heart to communicate and connect with people, to try to unearth their fears and their concerns and try to address them. Um, sometimes what we see instead is that, you know, people are working really hard um, and they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're attempting to, you know, get on board, but they just, their efforts are misplaced. They're just not achieving the goal. And so maybe they need more clarity about what the goal is. Maybe it's very clear to you where we're going, but maybe not so much your people. So you need more of that, um, you know, working around the, the vision and the strategy and the mission and the, you know, objective outcomes for the change. And maybe though, um, they're like, they're paralyzed. They're a deer in the headlights. They just can't get unstuck and into effective action. Well, maybe they need more hands. Maybe they need a plan and a process. Maybe they need more tools or more training, or maybe they've had a one-off training, but they need more coaching. Um, and sometimes there's barriers standing in the way of good people behaving consistently with the change. So for example, there could be a compensation system or a communication system or an operation system that is you know, consistent with the old way of doing things, but preventing people from um, working towards the new. 
So that's what I would say. I would say is, you know, attempt to become more aware through self-reflection and through other observation about your style and what your strengths might be and what your gaps might be, and then work to close those gaps. Okay. So when we look at change initiatives, you obviously have to have the awareness, right? Awareness and what you're good at, what you're not, figure out, fill the gaps, as you were saying. But there's also different types of change initiatives, right? There's ones that are completely internally focused. And then there's kind of a hybrid where, like, for example, sales transformation. I wholeheartedly believe you cannot do sales transformation in just the silo of sales, right? You have to go cross silo inside an organization, get alignment with marketing. But more importantly, you also have to include kind of outside influences. So customers. You could have vastly different people responding to different types of change leadership internally for, uh, versus externally, working with customers versus internal employees. So are there things that you have seen or recommendations for how to manage that hybrid or how to better determine how to mix those types of change leadership to make things like that effective? Yeah, absolutely. So the most effective change leaders adapt their style continuously, right? So they can be optimally effective for the audience that they're working with, the type of change initiative, the stage that you're in. And, you know, basically what you're talking about is influencing without authority, right? Um, Whether it's across organizational silos, whether it's outside your organization. So I think the number one thing to do there is to build a relationship. As I always say, you know, start with the heart and relationships get results. So as we know in sales, right, um, you know, that the opportunity is to build that relationship, put deposits in your emotional bank account with other people, right? Um, Because when it comes to change, change is hard and you're going to have to make a withdrawal, right? (laughs) Um, So so when you, you know, so talk about a return on your investment, the more you can invest in building relationships up, down, across, inside and outside the organization. um, So people understand what your intent is, right? Even though sometimes your impact on them might not be ultimately positive, right? If they can understand that you have positive intent, that you are simultaneously trying to optimize both their positive outcome as well as the change goals, then they'll be a lot more likely to partner with you towards them. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Let's change direction just a little bit here. I ask all of our guests kind of two standard questions towards the end of each interview. The first is simply in sales parlance as a leader of an organization yourself, that makes you a target or in the politically correct world, a prospect. And so when salespeople or anybody is trying to get in front of you because they think they have something that, you know, they want to sell you or a solution that will help you, how does somebody best get your attention and build credibility when there is no other existing relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to know that somebody, you know, cares about me, has done some research about me, um, understands my world, right? And that doesn't have to be me personally, but that means the business that I'm in, right? And so I want to understand that you have some clue about <laughs> my pain point, right, and my aspirations, and that uh, you have some thoughts, right? You're not going to waste my time. So, so I feel that. I feel that in you, right? Again, that old adage that it doesn't, you know, people aren't going to remember what you say. They're going to remember about how they made you feel, right? Yep. So I want, I want to feel some sense of that. And then I want to know that you're not wasting my time that you have some tangible ideas about how you can help me serve my clients better um, or at least, uh, you know, reduce my, the pain of my administrative burden within my, <laughs> so, so that's what I want to know. I want to feel that connection. And that's, that's another thing getting back to, um, you know, in a way people in my field, in the change management field, we're all salesmen. It's all about selling, right? It's all about selling the change, trying to get people on board, selling the change. And, um, and when we talk about that, we um, uh, 
we, we talk about the fact that it's all about sales. And so the bottom line is that how can you, um, uh, again, uh, not to, not to overstate something that, that, that sounds trite, but, uh, you know, what is, what is that win-win, right? You know, that relationships that get results. And so how can we focus on, again, uh, some people think that how people change psychologically is that they, um, learn a fact, right? They, they learn a fact or they, they see an analysis, right? Or some data that helps them think differently. So therefore they change. So it's kind of like, um, John Cotter talks about this, that you think you analyze, you think, and then you change. In fact, what makes people change is that they see a new possibility and that makes them feel differently and then they change, right? So really, while facts and figures and data and thinking is important, the intellectual aspect of change, the cognitive aspect, in fact, what really causes behavior change, right? And that could be moving forward with a new change initiative. It could be moving forward um, with a new sales partner, right, in a sales process. Um, it's all about feeling, you know, seeing something, seeing a possibility, feeling it, and then one changes. Yeah, we teach. it's funny. We teach in our classes that, you know, people make emotional buying decisions and then justify it with logic. And there's all that research out there. I'm drawing a blank on who did it, but there was a study of people who had had, uh, I think it was the amygdala damage, and they no longer literally were registering emotions. And you couldn't tell until you asked them to make a decision. As simple as which direction should we go or which shoe should you put on first. They just had no ability to make decisions. And so that emotional connection is, is critical. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Mm-hmm. So last question, we call it our acceleration insight. If there was one thing you could tell a sales, marketing, professional services person, one piece of advice you could give them that if they took it in, actually listened to it and applied it tomorrow morning would make them more successful, what would it be and why? Well, again, um, I don't know that this is going to be brand new for your audience, but as a psychologist, as a change leadership professional, um, I can't say it enough. Start with the heart. Relationships get results, right? Investing in the relationship is going to be an investment that's going to make a return on your investment, much more so than most other activities that you might engage in. Perfect. Barbara, if a listener's interested in talking more about the topics, getting access to the data, looking at some of those reports you got, touching on anything we talked about today, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Sure, just go to my website, changecatalysts, with an S at the end, dot com, and you can find all kinds of resources you can download. There's a way to contact me there. You can check out two free chapters of my book. Um, so lots of great resources. Awesome. Barbara, I can't thank you enough for taking the time today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, Chad. appreciate it. Bye for now. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, families, coworkers. If you like what you hear, please shoot me an email, send us a review online, do something on iTunes or Android, whatever it is. Write us a view. We do pay attention to that stuff so we know what type of guests to bring on. Until next time, we at Value Prime Solutions wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.